Section 38 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7, by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Trial and Execution of Jean d'Arc, A.D. 1431, by Jules Michelet, Part 2. The Jews never exhibited the rage against Jesus, which the English did against the Bruxelles. It must be owned that she had wounded them cruelly in the most sensible part, in the simple but deep esteem they have for themselves. At Orléans, the invincible men-at-arms, the famous archers, Talbot at their head, had shown their backs. At Jargo, sheltered by the good walls of a fortified town, they had suffered themselves to be taken. At Pate, they had fled as fast as their legs would carry them, fled before a girl. This was hard to be borne, and these taciturn English were forever pondering over the disgrace. They had been afraid of a girl, and it was not very certain, but that, chained as she was, they felt fear of her still, though seemingly not of her, but of the devil, whose agent she was. At least they endeavoured both to believe, and to have it believed so. But there was an obstacle in the way of this, for she was said to be a virgin, and it was a notorious and well-ascertained fact that the devil could not make a compact with a virgin. The coolest head among the English, Bedford, the regent, resolved to have the point cleared up, and his wife the duchess entrusted the matter to some matrons who declared jean to be a maid a favourable declaration which turned against her by giving rise to another superstitious notion to wit that her virginity constituted her strength her power and that to deprive her of it was to disarm her was to break the charm and lower her to the level of other women the poor girl's only defence against such a danger had been wearing male attire, though, strange to say, no one had ever seemed able to understand her motive for wearing it. All, both friends and enemies, were scandalised by it. At the outset she had been obliged to explain her reasons to the woman of Poitiers, and when made prisoner and under the care of the ladies of Luxembourg, those excellent persons prayed her to clothe herself as honest girls were wont to do. Above all, the English ladies, who have always made a parade of chastity and modesty, must have considered her so disguising herself monstrous and insufferably indecent. The Duchess of Bedford sent her female attire, but by whom? By a man, a tailor. The fellow, with impudent familiarity, was about to pass it over her head, and, when she pushed him away, laid his unmannerly hand upon her. His tailor's hand, on that hand which had borne the flag of France, she boxed his ears. If women could not understand this feminine question, how much less could priests? They quoted the text of a council held in the fourth century, which anathematized such change of dress, not seeing that the prohibition specially applied to a period when manners had been barely retrieved from pagan impurities. The doctors belonging to the party of Charles the Seventh, the apologists of the Pucelle, 
find exceeding difficulty in justifying her on this head. One of them, thought to be Gerson, makes the gratuitous supposition that the moment she dismounted from her horse, she was in the habit of resuming woman's apparel, confessing that Esther and Judith had had recourse to more natural and feminine means for their triumphs over the enemies of God's people. Entirely preoccupied with the soul, these theologians seem to have held the body cheap, provided the letter, the written law, be followed, the soul will be saved, the flesh may take its chance. A poor and simple girl may be pardoned her inability to distinguish so clearly. On the Friday and the Saturday, the unfortunate prisoner, despoiled of her man's dress, had much to fear. Brutality, furious hatred, vengeance, might severally incite the cowards to degrade her before she perished, to sully what they were about to burn. Besides, they might be tempted to varnish their infamy by a reason of state, according to the notions of the day. By depriving her of her virginity, they would undoubtedly destroy that secret power of which the English entertained such great dread, who perhaps might recover their courage where they knew that, after all, she was but a woman. According to her confessor, to whom she divulged the fact, an Englishman, not a common soldier, but a gentleman, a lord, patriotically devoted himself to this execution, bravely undertook to violate a girl laden with fetters, and, being unable to effect his wishes, rained blows upon her. On the Sunday morning, Trinity Sunday, when it was time for her to rise, as she told him who speaks, she said to her English guards, Leave me, that I may get up. One of them took off her woman's dress, emptied the bag in which was a man's apparel, and said to her, Get up. Gentlemen, she said, You know that dress is forbidden me. Excuse me, I will not put it on. The point was contested till noon, when, being compelled to go out for some bodily want, she put it on. When she came back, they would give her no other, despite her entreaties. In reality, it was not to the interest of the English that she should resume her man's dress, and so make null and void a retractation obtained with such difficulty. But at this moment, their rage no longer knew any bounds. Santral had just made a bold attempt upon Rouen. It would have been a lucky hit to have swept off the judges from the judgment seat and have carried Winchester and Bedford to Poitiers. The latter was subsequently all but taken on his return, between Rouen and Paris. As long as this accursed girl lived, who beyond a doubt continued in prison to practice her sorceries, there was no safety for the English. Perish she must. The assessors, who had notice instantly given them of her change of dress, found some hundred English in the court, to obstruct their passage, who, thinking that if these doctors entered, they might spoil all, threatened them with their axes and swords, and chased them out, calling them traitors of Armagnac. Cauchon, introduced with much difficulty, assumed an air of gaiety to pay his court to Warwick, and said with a laugh, She is caught. On the Monday he returned, along with the inquisitor and eight assessors, to question the Pucelle, and ask her why she had resumed that dress. 
she made no excuse, but bravely facing the danger, said that the dress was fitter for her as long as she was guarded by men, and that faith had not been kept with her. Her saints, too, had told her that it was great pity she had abjured to save her life. Still, she did not refuse to resume woman's dress. "'Put me in a seemly and safe prison,' she said. "'I will be good, and do whatever the church shall wish.' On leaving her, the bishop encountered Warwick and a crowd of English, and to show himself a good Englishman, he said in their tongue, "'Farewell, farewell.' This joyous adieu was about synonymous with "'Good evening, good evening, all's over.' On the Tuesday, the judges got up at the Archbishop's Palace a court of assessors, as they best might. Some of them had assisted at the first sitting only, others at none. In fact, composed of men of all sorts, priests, legists, and even three physicians, the judges recapitulated to them what had taken place and asked their opinion. This opinion quite different from what was expected, was that the prisoner should be summoned and her act of abjuration be read over to her. Whether this was in the power of the judges is doubtful. In the midst of the fury and swords of a raging soldiery, there was in reality no judge and no possibility of judgment. Blood was the one thing wanted, and that of the judges was, perhaps, not far from flowing. They hastily drew up a summons to be served the next morning at eight o'clock. She was not to appear, save to be burned. Kershaw sent her a confessor in the morning, Brother Martin Ladvenu, to prepare her for her death and persuade her to repentance. And when he apprised her of the death she was to die that day, she began to cry out grievously, to give way and tear her hair. Alas! Am I to be treated so horribly and cruelly? Must my body, pure as from birth, and which was never contaminated, be this day consumed and reduced to ashes? Ha! <laughs> I would rather be beheaded seven times over than be burned on this wise. Oh, I make my appeal to God, the great judge of the wrongs and grievances done me. After this burst of grief, she recovered herself and confessed, she then asked to communicate. The brother was embarrassed, but consulting the bishop, the latter told him to administer the sacrament, and whatever else she might ask. Thus, at the very moment he condemned her as a relapsed heretic and cut her off from the church, he gave her all that the church gives to her faithful. Perhaps the last sentiment of humanity awoke in the heart of the wicked judge, he considered it enough to burn the poor creature, without driving her to despair and damning her. Besides, it was attempted to do it privately, and the Eucharist was brought without stolen light. But the monk complained, and the Church of Rouen, duly warned, was delighted to show what it thought of the judgment pronounced by Cauchon. It sent along with the body of Christ numerous torches and a large escort of priests, who sang litanies, and as they passed through the streets, told the kneeling people, pray for her. After partaking of the communion, which she received with abundance of tears, she perceived the bishop and addressed him with the words, 
Bishop, I die through you. And again, had you put me in the prisons of the church and given me ghostly keepers, this would not have happened. And for this I summon you to answer before God. Then, seeing among the bystanders Pierre Maurice, one of the preachers by whom she had been addressed, she said to him, Ah, Master Pierre, where shall I be this evening? Have you not good hope in the Lord? Oh, yes, God to aid, I shall be in paradise. It was nine o'clock. She was dressed in female attire and placed on a cart. On one side of her was Brother Martin Ladvenu, the constable Massieu was on the other, the Augustine monk Brother Isambar, who had already displayed much charity and courage, would not quit her. Up to this moment the Pucelle had never despaired, with the exception perhaps of her temptation in the Passion Week. While saying, as she at times would say, These English will kill me, she in reality did not think so. She did not imagine that she could ever be deserted. She had faith in her king, in the good people of France, she had said expressly, There will be some disturbance, either in prison or at the trial, by which I shall be delivered, greatly, victoriously delivered. But though king and people deserted her, she had another source of aid, and a far more powerful and certain one, from her friends above, her kind and dear saints. When she was assaulting Saint-Pierre, and deserted by her followers, her saints sent an invisible army to her aid. How could they abandon their obedient girl, they who had so often promised her safety and deliverance? What, then, must her thoughts have been when she saw that she must die, when, carried in a cart, she passed through a trembling crowd under the guard of eight hundred Englishmen, armed with sword and lance? She wept and bemoaned herself, yet reproached neither her king nor her saints. She was only heard to utter, O oh, Rouen, Rouen, must I then die here? The term of her sad journey was the old market-place, the fish market. Three scaffolds had been raised. On one was the episcopal and royal chair, the throne of the cardinal of England, surrounded by the stalls of his prelates, on another were to figure the principal personages of the mournful drama, the preacher, the judges and the bailiff, and lastly the condemned one. Apart was a large scaffolding of plaster, groaning under a weight of wood. Nothing had been grudged the stake, which struck terror by its height alone. This was not only to add to the solemnity of the execution, but was done with the intent that, from the height to which it was reared, the executioner might not get at it, save at the base, and that to light it only, so that he would be unable to cut short the torments and relieve the sufferer, as he did with others, sparing them the flames. On this occasion, the important point was that justice should not be defrauded of her due, or a dead body be committed to the flames. They desired that she should be really burned alive, and that, placed on the summit of this mountain of wood, and commanding the circle of lances and of swords, she might be seen from every part of the market-place. There was reason to suppose that being slowly, tediously burned, before the eyes of a curious crowd, 
she might at last be surprised into some weakness, that something might escape her which could be set down as a disavowal, at the least some confused words which might be interpreted at pleasure, perhaps low prayers, humiliating cries for mercy, such as proceed from a woman in despair. The frightful ceremony began with the sermon. Master Nicholas Maidy, one of the lights of the University of Paris, preached upon the edifying text, When one limb of the church is sick, the whole church is sick. He wound up with the formula, Jean, go in peace, the church can no longer defend thee. The ecclesiastical judge, the Bishop of Beauvais, then benignly exhorted her to take care of her soul and to recall all her misdeeds, in order that she might awaken to true repentance. The assessors had ruled that it was the law to read over her abjuration to her. The bishop did nothing of the sort. He feared her denials, her disclaimers, but the poor girl had no thought of so chicaning away life. Her mind was fixed on far other subjects. Even before she was exhorted to repentance, she had knelt down and invoked God, the Virgin, St. Michael and St. Catherine, pardoning all and asking pardon, saying to the bystanders, Pray for me. In particular, she besought the priest to say each a mass for her soul. And all this so devoutly, humbly and touchingly, that sympathy becoming contagious, no one could any longer contain himself. The Bishop of Beauvais melted into tears. The Bishop of Boulogne sobbed, and the very English cried and wept as well. Winchester with the rest. Might it be in this moment of universal tenderness, of tears, of contagious weakness, that the unhappy girl, softened and relapsing into the mere woman, confessed that she saw clearly she had erred, and that apparently she had been deceived when promised deliverance. This is a point on which we cannot implicitly rely on the interested testimony of the English. Nevertheless, it would betray scant knowledge of human nature to doubt, with her hopes so frustrated, her having wavered in her faith. Whether she confessed to this effect in words is uncertain, but I will confidently affirm that she owned it in thought. Meanwhile the judges, for a moment put out of countenance, had recovered their usual bearing, and the Bishop of Vervais, drying his eyes, began to read the act of condemnation. He reminded the guilty one of all her crimes, of her schism, idolatry, invocation of demons, how she had been admitted to repentance, and how, seduced by the Prince of Lies, she had fallen, oh, grief, like the dog which returns to his vomit. Therefore, we pronounce you to be a rotten limb, and as such to be lopped off from the church. We deliver you over to the secular power, praying it at the same time to relax its sentence, and to spare you death and the mutilation of your members. Deserted thus by the church, she put her whole trust in God. She asked for the cross. An Englishman handed her a cross, which he made out of a stick. She took it, rudely fashioned as it was, with not less devotion, kissed it, and placed it under her garments, next to her skin. But what she desired was the crucifix belonging to the church, to have it before her eyes till she breathed her last. 
the good Hussier, Massieu, and brother Isambard interfered with such effect that it was brought her from St. Sauveur's. While she was embracing this crucifix, and brother Isambard was encouraging her, the English began to think all this exceedingly tedious. It was now noon at least. The soldiers grumbled, and the captains called out, "'What's this, priest? Do you mean us to dine here?' Then, losing patience, and without waiting for the order from the bailiff, who alone had authority to dismiss her to death, they sent two constables to take her out of the hands of the priests. She was seized at the foot of the tribunal by the men-at-arms, who dragged her to the executioner with the words, "'Do thy office!' The fury of the soldiery filled all present with horror, and many there, even of the judges, fled the spot that they may see no more. When she found herself brought down to the market-place, surrounded by English, laying rude hands on her, nature asserted her rights, and the flesh was troubled. Again she cried out, O Rouen, thou art then to be my last abode. She said no more, and in this hour of fear and trouble did not sin with her lips. She accused neither her king nor her holy ones, but when she set foot on the top of the pile, on viewing this great city, this motionless and silent crowd, she could not refrain from exclaiming, Ah, Rouen, Rouen, much do I fear you will suffer from my death. She who had saved the people, and whom that people deserted, gave voice to no other sentiment when dying, admiral sweetness of soul, than that of compassion for it. She was made fast under the infamous placard, mitred with a mitre on which was read, Heretic, relapser, apostate, idolater. And then the executioner set fire to the pile. She saw this from above and uttered a cry. Then, as the brother who was exhorting her paid no attention to the fire, forgetting herself in her fear for him, she insisted on his descending. The proof that up to this period she had made no express recantation is that the unhappy Cauchon was obliged, no doubt by the high satanic will which presided over the whole, to proceed to the foot of the pile, obliged to face his victim to endeavour to extract some admission from her. All that he obtained was a few words, enough to rack his soul. She said to him mildly, what she had already said, Bishop, I die through you. If you had put me into the church prisons, this would not have happened. No doubt hopes had been entertained that on finding herself abandoned by her king, she would at last accuse and defame him. To the last she defended him. Whether I have done well or ill, my king is faultless. It was not he who counselled me. Meanwhile the flames rose. When they first seized her, the unhappy girl shrieked for holy water. This must have been the cry of fear. But soon recovering, she called only on God, on her angels and her saints. She bore witness to them. Yes, my voices were from God. My voices have not deceived me. The fact that all her doubts vanished at this trying moment must be taken as a proof that she accepted death as the promised deliverance, that she no longer understood her salvation in the Judaic and material sense as until now she had done, that at length she saw clearly 
and that, rising above all shadows, her gifts of illumination and of sanctity were at the final hour made perfect unto her. The great testimony she thus bore is attested by the sworn and compelled witness of her death, by the Dominican who mounted the pile with her, whom she forced to descend, but who spoke to her from its foot, listened to her, and held out to her the crucifix. There is yet another witness of this sainted death, a most grave witness, who must himself have been a saint. This witness, whose name history ought to preserve, was the Augustine monk already mentioned, Brother Isambard de la Pierre. During the trial he had hazarded his life by cancelling the Pucelle, and yet, though so clearly pointed out to the hate of the English, he persisted in accompanying her in the cart, procured the parish crucifix for her, and comforted her in the midst of the raging multitude, both on the scaffold, where she was interrogated, and at the stake. Twenty years afterward, the two venerable friars, simple monks, vowed to poverty, and having nothing to hope or fear in this world, bear witness to the scene we have just described. We heard her, they say, in the midst of the flames, invoke her saints, her archangel. Several times she called on her saviour. At the last, as her head sunk on her bosom, she shrieked, Jesus! Ten thousand men wept. A few of the English alone laughed, or endeavoured to laugh. One of the most furious among them had sworn he would throw a faggot on the pile. Just as he brought it, she breathed her last. He was taken ill. His comrades led him to a tavern to recruit his spirits by drink, but he was beyond recovery. I saw, he exclaimed in his frantic despair, I saw a dove fly out of her mouth with her last sigh. Others had read in the flames the word Jesus, which she so often repeated. The executioner repaired in the evening to Brother Isambard, full of consternation, and confessed himself. He felt persuaded that God would never pardon him. One of the English king's secretaries said aloud on returning from the dismal scene, We are lost. We have burned a saint. Though these words fell from an enemy's mouth, they are not the less important, and will live uncontradicted by the future. Yes, whether considered religiously or patriotically, Jeanne d'Arc was a saint. Where find a finer legend than this true history? Still, let us beware of converting it into a legend. Let us piously preserve its every trait, even such as are most akin to human nature, and respect its terrible and touching reality. End of section 38 Recording by Florence Russell, 